All right, everybody, welcome back to Adult Sunday School. It's, uh, it was like exciting driving up, being like, oh, everyone's like heading into the bridge again. It feels like old times, it's all exciting, and like, it really feels like we're going now, hey? You know, got this, got the ship up and running, all things uh, despite. So anyways, this is um, 2 Corinthians part two. We finished basically half the book in the spring before we got shut down, and we did it over Zoom for a little bit. So anyways, we are halfway through the book, so we're going to be starting at chapter 7 and uh, going on from there. Um, I'll give a bit of a recap of kind of the context of this book and a little bit of where we've been and where we're going. So 2 Corinthians is obviously the second letter Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Uh, He started this church in Acts 18, and... um, Living in such a pagan city, this whole Christianity thing was so new that you obviously would expect there's going to be a lot of rough patches. It's going to be a rough start. And so there was a lot of issues he had to address in 1 Corinthians. So it was kind of a harsh letter in the fact that Paul was really having to do a lot of rebuking. And this involved rebuking them for divisions and disunity in the church, um, for a lot of sexual immorality, particularly an incestuous relationship between a guy and his um, um, his father's new wife, um, which is kind of messed up. Uh, There was lawsuits believers were going against each other. There was big issues with how they celebrated the Lord's Supper. People were actually getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Like, could you actually imagine? (laughs) Um, It'd be pretty hard on our little uh, thimble-sized. But in that act of worship, people actually getting drunk and, like, oppressing poor people, not letting them eat. So a lot of issues Paul had to address. And so after he wrote that letter, Paul was super worried whether the church would receive it. You know, there's not instantaneous communication. So it's like, if you want to find out how your letter to Corinth is received, you have to wait for someone literally to journey on foot, carrying a return letter or coming back with any sort of information. So Paul was really concerned that this letter was received and even more so because it seems what was at issue here was church leadership. And if you think in the early church, they don't have the sort of systems of church life that we have. They don't have doctrinal standards. They didn't even have the New Testament. And so they were very much at the um, at the whims of people that rose up to consider themselves leaders to say, no, no, I will teach you the way of Jesus and you need to follow me. And Paul very quickly came against opposition of people wanting to take leadership away from Paul towards themselves. And so these are kind of Paul's two big concerns is will the church of Corinth be faithful to him as a true minister of God and heed his words above these other people? And um, can their relationship be sort of maintained and repaired in light of how much rebuke he's given to them, right? Like we often wonder with people, if we come down hard on them on something, will they pull away from us and stop listening to us? And so these are kind of things at the forefront of Paul's mind and There's kind of three basic sections in 2 Corinthians. We're going to be finishing up the first section today, but um, a big theme in chapters 1 through 7 is just Paul's concern to be reconciled to this church, to have this church uh, be in good harmony with him, to know that they love one another and that they're going to respect his apostleship. Uh, In 8 and 9, it's going to be talking um, sort of a digression on generosity. And then 10 through the end, Paul's again kind of affirming his apostleship against these so-called super apostles and talking about God's strength and weakness. So that's kind of where we're coming to. Uh, This chapter 7 here is very contextual in the fact that it relates a lot to Paul talking about his relationship to the church, and also that relationship mediated through Titus. So what happened is that Paul, um, 
in wanting to hear how the church received his letter, the person who was going to let him know how things went was Titus. So Titus uh, went on a side trip up to Corinth, and Titus was coming back, and Titus brought news to Paul of how the church was doing, how they had received his letter. And so we're going to see um, Paul talking about a lot of these dynamics when we look at this letter today. So with that said, uh, let's read through this together. Uh, just some housekeeping, I guess, for someone, uh, those of you that have not been in one of my classes before. Uh, discussion is encouraged. You're allowed to jump in kind of whenever you want. Just raise your hand and I'll call on you. Um, I'll try to pause and ask for comments or questions. Uh, but if no one has anything to say, I'll usually just keep rambling on and on and on uh, without stop. Like the Energizer Bunny up here. So, um, but anyways, if you have anything that's like a question or thought, definitely feel free to shoot it out. Uh, you don't have to feel bad about that at all. Okay, so let's uh, read this chapter together. What we usually do is just go around the room and uh, read one verse each. And I think with the class of size, we're going to run out about halfway. So uh, let's start. And we're starting at verse 2 because we actually finished with verse 1 in chapter 6 because it's more connected to that chapter. And a new thought starts at verse 2. So 2 Corinthians 7, verse 2. Uh, let's start with Matt. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one, corrupted no one, taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you. First I said, before that, you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am very frank with you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with encouragement. I am overflowing with joy in all of our afflictions. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the arrival of Titus. And not only by his arrival, but also by the comfort he received from you. He told us about your deep longing, your sorrow, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For even if I grieve, you <clears throat> with my letter, I don't regret it. If I regretted it, since I saw that... The letter grieves you, yet only for a while. And I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you were grieved as God willed, so that you didn't experience any loss from us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Yeah, let's wrap around and go back. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. So, so although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, for, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted, and besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if I have made any boast in him about you, I have not been disappointed. But as I have spoken everything to you in truth, so our boasting to Titus has also turned out to be the truth. And his affection toward you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of all of you and how you received him with fear and trembling. Rejoice that I have complete confidence. Um, 
Amen. Let's thank God for his holy word and ask his blessing on this study. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given your word to light our path and uh, to reveal light in the darkness. But Lord, we thank you also that your word comes to us in a historical context. It comes as part of your gift to your church. And Lord, as we seek to go back in time, as it were, and see what Paul and the church and Titus um, how they're interacting, Lord, would we learn from how you worked then and how you were teaching then, Lord, and we would see the relevance to our lives now and learn lessons from your word uh, together, that we might be strengthened in our faith, uh, united in love and together, striving for the faith of the gospels. Would you bless this study now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to go through this verse by verse, um, and I'll comment as we go and stop for comments or questions as needed. Okay, already take a look at verse two there. Uh, Paul starts this discussion telling the church, make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one, corrupted no one, taken advantage of no one. So remember, Paul's concerned that they are endeared to him as their leader. And he's reminding them, we haven't wrong, we haven't done anything wrong, we haven't been corrupt, we've had integrity in all our dealings, okay? So just re remember that. I don't say this to condemn you, since I've already said that you're in our hearts to die together and live together. I'm very frank with you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with encouragement. I am overflowing with joy in all our afflictions. So this is Paul's disposition towards this church. It's one of great love. He says, um, you are in our hearts to live together and die together. Almost is saying, uh, my life is bound up with your spiritual good, your spiritual flourishing. Uh, we're united together. And Paul's telling them that I haven't done anything wrong. I've treated you well. I've even been frank with you when need, right? And if we have good relationships with people, we know we can be frank with them. But a frankness uh, that is coached in love. And often people that uh, consider themselves, you know, blunt or frank people, um, there is something good about that to be able to speak openly. But we have to remember that that always has to be couched in a, I'm saying this with you in my heart. I'm not just saying whatever I want to say, but I'm trying to speak in a way helpful to you, even if I need to speak frankly. But uh, my heart should come through clearly, my care for you in this. And the reason Paul has great pride and is filled with encouragement and joy is because of how he's heard they've responded to his letter. We're going to see that Titus came with a good report to Paul, a good message saying that this Corinthian church did respond well to Paul's letter. They repented in light of his rebukes, and they have held fast to him as a true minister of God. And I think one thing we learn from these first three verses is just something of um, what relationships ought to be like in the body of Christ especially between leaders and between church members. Paul said, you are in our hearts. And he asks them in verse two there, make room in your hearts for us. And I like that idea of there being a room in the heart. It's almost as if each of our hearts were a house and there's all these rooms in it. Um, but in a sense, our hearts are limited. And the question is, what are we going to put in the rooms of our heart? Um, it's really easy to crowd out our affections with just things of this world. There's so many things that we uh, can tend to care a lot about. And often that doesn't leave much room to bring other people into our lives and to actually make space in our affections and love. 
And so Paul's actually telling them, make room in your hearts, clear space in your hearts to truly love us as your leaders, even as we have room in our hearts for you. And I think leaders aside, for each one of us, we should be cognizant of that fact that do I make room in my heart for my brothers and sisters in the church? Do I make room in my heart for my church leaders? Do I actually love them and pray for them and want to care about them? Because this church ought to be a place of um, mutual heart room. Just as you know that your pastor cares about you guys and prays for you guys by name every day. Um, that ought to be reciprocal. And I think another thing we can learn in this idea of this reciprocal love is um, just in a sense how much the gospel levels the church. It's not that leaders in the church come and get to bear over the flock and just command the right way to live. There's a room in their heart filled with love. And we believe in the priesthood of all believers. And in this idea of mutuality, um, we need to guard against a sort of um, what some here might call like a domini mentality that just the pastor is high up or the elders are way up here and they're on a different level and plane and um, we need, kind of need to keep our distance from them and let them do their thing. Uh, that's not at all what the Bible uh, wants. It's a servant leadership. There's mutuality, reciprocality. And um, even as Jesus taught in Matthew 23, he even talked about don't let any man call you teacher. Let no one call you father. And so, um, I hesitate to say this, but it's totally okay to call Pastor Mike by his first name. Uh, it's very appropriate to just refer to him as Mike. We don't need to have special reverential titles for leaders. Jesus even warns against that as something that can, can conduce to pride and worldliness. But anyways, you can call pastors what, what you want. I just want to point out, we are all um, priests in God's kingdom, and there is great mutuality here. Okay, so that's Paul's contention in verses 2 to 4. Um, any comments or questions on this short section? Alrighty, uh, take a look at verse 5. So he says, I'm super encouraged. I'm really pumped on what's going on. Here's why. Verse 5 kind of starts a bit of a story. He says, in fact, when we came to Macedonia, we had no rest. Okay, so he's in Macedonia away from Corinth, and he's like, I have no rest. I'm restless because we have conflicts on the outside. You know, Paul was basically persecuted everywhere he went and fears within. He talks later in this letter that he has the burden of the daily anxiety of all the churches. Um, a pastor has enough anxiety caring for one church, but Paul's overseeing a whole network of churches in a whole massive part of the Roman Empire. So he, he has no rest in his flesh, but God, verse 6, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the arrival of Titus. Remember, right, we said Titus was sort of a correspondent. He went to Corinth to check how the church received the letter, and Titus comes back, and his coming back is a real comfort to Paul. Uh, not only by his arrival, but also by the comfort he received from you. He told us about your deep longing, your sorrow, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. So Titus came back with a good report that the church did love Paul, that they were being zealous to obey the things that he taught. And therefore, he says, we are comforted or encouraged. And one thing that's interesting here is that the bearer of comfort is Titus, right? So Titus comes with good news 
And Paul says that we're comforted through the Titus' arrival, but look, he attributes that to God. He said, it's God who comforts the downcast, who comforted us through Titus. I think that's just a really cool picture of sort of God's sovereignty and our human responsibility that God is ultimately attributed for bringing comfort to Paul in his restlessness, but the means of that comfort is through a person. It's through Titus. And uh, we can recognize that God doesn't just comfort us directly by uh, his spirit in the word or just in prayer, but through one another. And we ought to be bearers of great comfort and encouragement to each other. And he's, he's comforted because of their response to his letter. And so take a look at verse 8. He said, For even if I grieved you with my letter, I don't regret it. And if I regretted it, since I saw that the letter grieved you, yet only for a while. And I, I, I like here, this, this is the sort of attitude we should have when we have to bring someone correction or admonishment. He's saying, um, I, I regretted that I had to grieve you. Um, I'm, I'm sad that I had to make you sad, but I don't actually regret what happened with this. I was sad that I had to bring a word of correction. It's not fun for me to have to correct you, but I don't regret having grieved you with my letter because of the results of this letter, because of what this led to. I rejoice not because you were grief. We should never rejoice to make someone's life harder or to make them sad with correction, but he rejoices because the grief led to repentance, verse 9. I rejoice because your grief, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. And the repentance envisioned here um, is probably primarily to do with that incestuous relationship that they had to exercise church discipline for. And this, that would have really torn up a small fledgling church. They had to discipline this one man that was in sin but also the many other ways he corrected them for their abuses of the Lord's Supper, for their disunities, for their lawsuits, for their factions and divisions. Uh, Paul had to write a lot of things, and it seems that they repented. And what a beautiful truth it is that they did repent. And uh, this is the heart we have behind all sorts of church discipline. The goal is to bring people for repent to repentance, not to punish them, but to see in a sense that sin is punished, that they might come to a true repentance. And I think as we see a picture of church discipline here, one thing for us uh, to remember is that church discipline doesn't only start when it goes to the elders of the church and the elders start investigating and thinking of things. The first step of church discipline is us talking to one another and going to one another and saying, hey, I see something in your life that seems out of alignment with the way Jesus would have us live. We actually have a, like a very important part to play in uh, the discipline of the church, which is just seeing, um, it's a mutual accountability to see that we're all living in the way Christians should live, that we don't in our lives have, throw disgrace on Jesus. And so we actually should see ourselves involved here, but have the sort of heart that Paul has to say, I, I don't want to grieve you. But if I can bring you something that leads you to repentance, then I'll rejoice in that. Uh, any comments or questions on any of that so far?
All right, uh, the end of verse 9 here. I rejoice because your grief led to repentance. For you were grieved as God wills so that you didn't experience any loss from us. He's saying, my letter of correction and rebuke, it actually turned out for your benefit. You didn't, you're not losing out on anything because of that. And this is, you know, kind of the famous verse in this passage. But this is the context it's coming in. Verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. Uh, this is a really great verse. It reminds us the difference between godly grief and worldly grief. The type of grief that leads to a true repentance um, that leads to salvation where contrasted with a type of grief that leads to death. And the, the way I've mostly heard this taught, maybe you have too, is just, um, it's just, just simply people will say, godly grief is grieving over sin, and worldly grief is grieving over the consequences of sin. That's the way I've usually heard it. And that's partly true, but there's more to it than that. Uh, this is a really, this is a broad idea. So this phrase, godly grief, uh, is more literally sorrow according to God, or grieving according to God, which is an, quite an interesting, fairly vague term. But I think the contrast that's most in view here between godly grief and worldly grief, um, I think we can think of in really just this simple way. Uh, does God have anything to do with my repentance? Does God have anything to do with my grief? If I've been corrected by someone, called out by someone, and I'm grieved about it, I'm sorrowful, I'm sad about it, where does God factor into that? Um, and I fear often when I think of things that I've felt bad for, and sometimes I wonder, um, did I care about God in any of that? Was any of that according to God? Because true godly grief has reference to God and everything. So it is reference to God um, in one place as the person sinned against. You remember Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned, David said. Um, the recognition that our sins were against God. Um, it's the type of grief that comes from the spirit of God. It's a spirit-wrought re repentance. Thirdly, it's, um, it's repentance that leads to God. If your sorrow is not the type of sorrow that leads you to the foot of the cross to find forgiveness and grace from God through Christ... That's not godly sorrow. Godly sorrow, um, it's from God, it's towards God, and it leads to God. Whereas worldly sorrow, worldly sorrow doesn't have reference to any of those things. It has reference maybe to how bad we feel, uh, maybe a feeling bad about the people we hurt, and the consequences that might result from it, but where does God factor into it? And so we just need to be aware in all of our failings, in all of our shortcomings, um, let's just think about God in it, remembering that all our sins are sins against God. They detract from his glory. They're a disobedience to his law, not just the way we want to live. They hurt um, people he has created. And so to have this sort of godly grief uh, is a grief with reference to God. And it says that it produces repentance. And repentance in scripture is not feeling bad. This is sorrow. Godly sorrow is that guilt, that feeling bad, that produces repentance, which is a change of life. The strong idea behind repentance is a turnaround, a total change of direction that actually leads away from disobedience 
towards obedience. And it says that this repentance leads to salvation without regret. And it's a, we, we could variously think of what's he actually meaning by salvation here, because the word salvation uh, is used in many ways in the New Testament. It doesn't always just mean our present conversion. So what Paul might more be saying here is that when you repent, you are saved out of or rescued from this, this destructive pattern of behavior. You're rescued from living in a way that really just leads to death and your own detriment. And it's a salvation, a deliverance from a way of life without regret. That is, you're not going to regret ever fleeing sin and following God. And really, isn't that the truth that I don't think there's been some, there's no one who's ever truly left a way of life of sin to follow Christ from the heart that's regretted it. Because it is the best way to live. It is the most joyful, hopeful, love-filled life. And even though the Christian life is attended with many sorrows, many troubles and tribulations, um, it is a life without regret because sin does produce death. And not just physical death, but just a deathness in our life, a deathly way of being like a zombie of the living dead, if you will. But we're called to live in a way that is life-giving, which involves following God. Um, any comments or questions? It is said by some sociologists that as soon as a group is over 12 people, uh, people get more shy to talk. So we're, we're well over 12 right now. So that's the way apparently it works. Okay, uh, now let's look at, okay, look at verse 11 there. Verse 11 goes on to list the effects that this true godly sorrow and repentance produced. And what's interesting here is that we're only sort of given these brief uh, adjectives and they're, they're not really filled in what they're referring to. So we have to slightly con, uh, conjecture what they're referring to. Um, but we can take, uh, take what's actually written in the scriptures as, uh, as the truth. And um, I'll say what I think they're referring to, but this is not guaranteed, okay? Is that, is that fair? Verse 11. Consider how much diligence this very thing, this grieving as God wills, has produced in you. So the first thing he says that it's produced is uh, this diligence or this carefulness. What this might be referring to is a sort of um, a carefulness to deal with this sin, to watch that the sin's not going to come back, and um, to remove the evil from the midst. That's actually what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 5, that um, even that quoting the Old Testament, to remove the evil person from among you. They were careful to follow Paul's instructions in church discipline. Uh, what a desire to clear yourselves. Um, this isn't the type of clearing yourself, like putting up a, a defense in a court. It's like, no, no, we didn't do anything wrong. No, it's a saying, it's like, I'm desiring to fix what's wrong here. I'm desiring to clear myself from being complicit in this by actually um, dealing with it, by actually working towards church discipline here. Um, they, as a church, wanted to see themselves as a church clearer. And one thing that's really interesting in this whole list, and really this whole discussion, is that even though there's primarily one person who was in sin here, or two people in this incestuous relationship, the whole church is repenting together. There's, in a sense, a corporate recognition of guilt, even due to the sins of one person, 
that the whole church has come together to see themselves clear in. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that later, but that's really interesting and very significant, I think even for our day, um, how the church corporately deals with sin in its midst. He says, what indignation. You know, they've come to realize how sinful this sin is, and they rise up, rise up with hatred for it. We should hate sin, have indignation and anger against sin, because sin is so destructive. Um, and, you know, shouldn't we feel this more often? Um, often we, I fear that, you know, my passions against sin are too weak, right? Um, the, the slaughter of the unborn doesn't enough cause me to truly rise up with hatred in my heart. The way sexual immorality and pornography breaks and destroys marriages, it doesn't make me angry enough. I don't have enough indignation against that. Um, to really, when we see sin as it is, we should really hate the ugly monstrosity that it truly is. Um, indignation against sin was produced in this church. What fear, that this might be a, a fear of re repeating this sin, that now that we've seen um, sin in all its ugly manifestation, we now fear falling into that because we know the destructive consequences of it. What deep longing, potentially deep longing to, to be pure of this sin, to be rid of this sin, to walk as God would have them walk. What zeal, um, what zeal against sin, what zeal for repentance. And as I was thinking through this list, the one, this was actually the one that stood out the most to me. This idea of being zealous in repentance. And, you know, uh, zeal is kind of a mix between, there's a slight twinge of almost an anger, like a passion there, um, but also a very strong motivation to do something. Um, zeal is a very compelling force. And so when I think of zealous repentance, I think of that sort of resolute, um, that will that just says, I must change. I have to change. I must leave this behind. And so when I was thinking of my own life, I really feel like that too often my repentance is sort of half-hearted. Like, uh, I, knew, I, I know that was wrong. I, I'm going to try to do better. And that sort of half-hearted, um, the kind of recognition of sin, but kind of a hopelessness that I know I'm probably not going to change that much, but I'll try. Um, that is an unzealous repentance. That is a weak-willed repentance and the sort of repentance that actually affects change is where there is zeal to say, I cannot go down this path again. I cannot live this way of life any longer. And I am willing to do whatever it takes to, as Jesus said, to cut off the hand, to pluck out the eye, to have a radical view towards sin that I'm just willing to do what it takes. I think one of the best images of this, uh, if you remember that story in the book of Numbers, where Israel was... Basically, they were plotted against to be taken down, but the way Balaam was going to take them down was by enticing them with Midianitish women to commit sexual immorality. And he, he knew if he could get the whole culture sinning sexually, uh, they would be destroyed from the inside. And as they saw destructive sexual immorality in their culture, uh, there was one who we are told had zeal. And uh, it was a priest named Phineas. And we are told that Phineas was zealous for the purity of God's people. And what he did in his zeal is he took a spear and plunged it through two people having sexual relations in a tent, through the back of one, through the stomach of the other. 
he was so zealous, he went to this, just this radical extreme to stop the spread of um, soul-corrupting, identity-corrupting sin in the camp. And the Lord was so pleased with his zeal that he actually made uh, a special covenant with Phineas from now, from then on, and with all his offspring. Uh, we're not told much about it. There's a slight allusion to it in Psalm, I think it's 105. Don't quote me on that. But that was the picture of zeal. And would we have such zeal against our sin that, as it were, we would take up uh, a spear, the sword of the spirit, and strike ourselves through our own hearts that we would stop the spread of sin in our lives? Uh, we need zeal. And then lastly, justice. That is, that this people, they actually were willing to take this sin and the sinner and bring them to justice through proper church discipline. This seems like it even went to the highest level of excommunication. Of ha- In 1 Corinthians 5, he says, handing this person over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit might be saved. They actually did what was right in carrying out justice. And just when people, just because people repent of sin or are sorry, doesn't mean we don't continue to try to carry out justice. Um, This has been talked a lot about recently with with things like abuse, that just because someone seems to have repented or said they're sorry, doesn't mean that we don't go through the proper carriage of justice, um, even civilly through our court system and the police, because justice still ought to be done. Even where there's repentance, there can still be justice. Uh, In every way you showed yourselves to be pure in this matter. They fully took sin seriously, dealt with it appropriately, as Paul commanded. Um, Any other thoughts or questions from that? What is the balance between zeal and, I guess, communication? Looking at this more from non-believers and how do you, Mm. you know, calling out a non-believer for sin in my experience is a difficult way to start a conversation. Mm -hmm. So like, where is that balance and how do I have zeal for that and get excited about it, but also not have that portrayed as I start to talk about sin or what do you say? Hmm. Well, I guess the first thing that comes to mind is what Paul says in first Corinthians talking about discipline. Um, He says, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Um, Is it not those in the church whom you ought to judge? Uh, Because he says, I forget the exact quote, but like the people in the world will live as the world and we should expect that. But we need to be concerned about the church. And, you know, Peter says that it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And so I think, you know, we people that have not pledged allegiance to Christ, um, we can't try to force them to hold to the standard of discipleship to Christ in the same way. So. Part of me thinks that, you know, we can, I think, appeal to people's humanity, appeal to their conscience, like Romans 2 would lead us, that, you know, is there not something in here that feels wrong or mistreating of other people? But I think there's only so far we can go in that because they don't have the same law as we do in following Christ. So I think there's something we can do, but um, yeah, we, we, we wouldn't call out sin in the same way as we would with a believer because there's not the glory of Christ and the witness of his church at stake in the same way. So, I don't know, does anyone else have any other thoughts that might add to that? Or any, any follow-up? Oh, yeah, Andrew? It seems like also unbelievers don't have a motivation for obedience because the motivation is really pleasing Christ. Mm-hmm. So it's like you're not really on the same... 
you're not starting from the same point. But on the other hand, you can't encourage general, I don't know, goodness in society, but that, mm -hmm. I guess, would look different. Yeah, and there is a cult. There's definitely cultists in scripture to um, pursue justice, to defend the rights of the poor, the fatherless, the stranger, the orphan, the widow. And so, like, we definitely ought to call out unbelievers for oppression of one another, um, things like human rights violations, and anything really that's against the laws of our society. I think we can call out. But I think there's a sense in I forget someone said this more proverbially, but. This idea of that um, we should be gentle with other people's sins and harsh towards our own, especially when we're dealing interpersonally. Um, let's deal with our own sin harshly and stringently and zealously, uproot it. But when we come to others, come to them in a spirit of gentleness, speaking the truth in love, because that's probably how they'll receive it best from us. And then let the Holy Spirit work in them a zeal against their own sin. I think that would be probably the best way to approach it, in my opinion. Oh, but yeah, good good question. Um, and so, yeah, just a few more words on this idea of corporate re repentance. Uh, this is something we really struggle to understand because we live in such an individualistic culture, one that has very little idea of how corporate solidarity works in scripture. And so many scriptural concepts, we have lots of trouble understanding. Even the idea of infant baptism that there is a household principle that infants are baptized based on the professed faith of the household. That seems weird to us that it's not the infant's own faith, but it's actually the faith of the home that gives them right to baptism. Or even things like how can we be responsible for Adam's sin? Why would we be imputed with guilt based on what Adam did that long ago? Uh, we struggle with stories like Achan, where because of Achan's sin, for one, the whole community of Israel was defeated in battle and destroyed, and all his family uh, received a consequence. And so we see here is that the church as a whole is repenting for the sins of some of the people. And um, I think this has pretty significant implications for us politically. I won't say in what way specifically, but it is right for us to repent for sins that we have not committed. It is right to repent of sins that go on in our nation and to cry out for God um, in behalf of other people. Uh, we see Daniel do this in Daniel chapter 9. He confesses sins of the nation and repents for them, even though he had no partaking of them. He was not party to them. They were done in a different time by different people. Yet it is right for him to take ownership as a part of the group and repent. And again, because we're so individualistic, this is really hard for us to understand and even see how that makes sense. That by being a part of the same group as other people, we can actually repent for sins on behalf of that group. And we ought to consider uh, the whole. And so even in our church, and we think of sin amongst the body, we don't want there to be an Achan situation where because we are allowing one, um, a small pocket of sin in our church, that in a sense, the blessing of our whole church is removed. Um, and if we allow sin in our midst, sin brings about death, not just for the individual, but even for the bodies of which they're a part. And so that's part of the reason why we need to be zealous to make sure that we're walking in holiness, not allowing sin to reign in our body, because the, the effects of sin can go beyond ourselves. 
uh, which is really scary. And so we need to be repenting not only for our own spiritual walk, but also for our, uh, the body of Christ here. Uh, just a bit of a different way of thinking. Does that make sense how I'm saying that? Any comments, questions? I have a question. Mm-hmm. So is that what you're saying? If, for example, there's a marriage where one is in sin, you're saying that the other spouse should be repenting for the sin of the one? Uh, I guess maybe... Um... Maybe, maybe re- repenting isn't the best word because that involves a change of behavior. So like, if you're not living in sin, you're not changing your behavior. But I think maybe uh, confessing the sin of the other would be appropriate. So for instance, Job in Job 1, he actually confesses the sins of his children and pays guilt offerings for the sins of his children, uh, which is interesting. And I'm not sure how it works, whether God actually forgives those sins because someone else confessed them um, but there's some recognition that, you know, even as the father of this home, the other people in this home, I can confess to God for. And I don't know how it works metaphysically, what sort of spiritual transactions take place when that happens. But at the very least, I think it would be appropriate to confess the sins of a spouse before God because they're united with you in the same home. And so I think in there's sense which we can confess the sins of our home because we're a part of the home, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's definitely a, a different way of thinking. Yeah. Good, good question. Um, let's try to finish up here in these last couple minutes. Uh, ver- look, look at verse 12. So even though I wrote to you, it was not because of the one who did wrong or because of the one who was wrong, but in order that your devotion to us might be made plain to you in the sight of God. So Paul's saying, he's like, I actually didn't even write that first letter just to stop the sin in the congregation. I didn't write it just because I wanted you guys corrected and rebuked. He said, my bigger purpose in this was to secure your devotion to us, uh, to secure your heart for us in the sight of God. Or you might be able to say that he was concerned that they be devoted to God by following the way he was teaching them. It was almost as if seeing whether they would obey in this was a test of whether they actually had allegiance to God. Just like God says to the people of Israel all the time in the wilderness, I'm testing you to know whether your heart is actually for me by testing particular obedience. So it's almost as if by Paul calling them to particular obedience, he's seeing whether they're willing to obey God above all. For this reason, we've been comforted because they were devoted to God and they did repent. In addition to our own comfort, we rejoiced even more over the joy Titus has had because his spirit was refreshed by you. Titus was Paul's protege. Paul loved Titus. Paul loved the Corinthians, and he spoke well of them to each other. He told the Corinthians, Titus is awesome. You're going to love him. Told Titus, this Corinthian church will welcome and receive you. They're great. This mutual boasting. And he says, I was so happy because you guys really took care of Titus well. You refreshed him. And if I have made any boast about him to you, I've not been disappointed. So they loved Titus. Titus loved them. But as I've spoken everything to you in truth, so our boasting to Titus has also turned out to be true. And his affection toward you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all and how you received him with fear and trembling. That is, the the church recognized Titus to be an apostolic representative of Paul, and they actually um, listened to Titus. 
and followed his instruction, knowing he was sent under the oversight and within a sense, the authority of Paul. And Titus was even, his heart was warm as he remembered this. He was warned how he remembered how they um, received Paul's letter and repented, and he got to see all that firsthand. And Paul ends saying, I rejoice that I have complete confidence in you. And so what a wonderful way for him to conclude with his heart towards this Corinthian church. He's like, I've written to you many hard things. I've worked hard, but I have complete confidence in you. I have complete confidence in you. Um, I'm just going to end with this. It reminds me of, I was listening to this one. Uh, I forget exactly. It was like a management uh, podcast talking about um, how to encourage people. And this was saying that the best way to um, get people to receive instruction and um, see them press on was to say basically this, and I hope I don't butcher this, but to say, um, what I'm going to tell you might be hard because I have really high standards, but I know and I'm confident that you'll be able to meet them. And I just, I just, that reminded me of that, this idea of you tell people, it's like, hey, I expect a lot, and that's why I might have to bring some correction here and tell you you need to do better, but I have total trust in you and believe you're totally able to rise to the challenge. And that's how Paul's ending. He's saying, you know, I've had high standards. I've called you to a higher way of living. I've called you to obedience, but I'm confident that you guys have and will continue to walk in the way of Christ. So uh, any final uh, questions or comments? We make room for one more. Awesome. Okay, let's uh, close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that through the work of the Spirit, you've brought many of our hearts to repentance, to see our sin in the light of your holiness, to see the many ways we break your law. And we thank you that that repentance led to faith and that we do now have your Holy Spirit filling us, convicting us of sin. And Lord, we so pray that you will help us to be a repenting people, to live the Christian life as one of daily repentance, recognizing how far we fall short of the glory of God, yet zealously endeavoring to renew our obedience and our allegiance to Jesus, to truly be his disciples and walk in his ways. Lord, help us to be a repenting church. Help us to look out for one another. Lord, we ask that you will not allow sin to grow hidden in our midst, that you will not allow sins of division, sins of sexual immorality, sins of anger and hatred, to ever grow up and to spring up and cause trouble in our midst. But help us to be on the lookout for one another, to exhort one another every day when it's called today that no one would be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And let us, Lord, seek each other's good out of love, that we would love one another well enough that we'd be willing to say hard truths when they're necessary, that we're willing to speak against sin. And Lord, as we seek to humbly and gently correct each other, let us be zealous against sin in our own hearts, to not give it an inch, but to fully and radically uproot it, depending on the work of your spirit in this, that we might be a holy people who see the Lord, uh, the pure in heart who see God. Lord, would you work this uh, love and this zeal in our midst. Lord, and be with our worship service, be with the children, learning that they would grow in the faith and help us to glorify you today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.